thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us here and getting to enjoy the fellowship that you've provided for us and getting to enjoy um, just sitting down and hearing from your word that it might teach us and by your, the power of your Holy Spirit, you might move us to understand you more. Please help us with a book that is familiar, a book that we most likely know well, and just give us new ears to hear and new hearts to understand the good plans that you have for us and the good uh, demands that you have on our life, Lord, not because you are a manipulative or controlling God, but rather because you are a gracious God who desires uh, for us to be more compassionate people and for you to help us understand your compassion greater. So thank you, Lord, for everything you've done for us, especially in salvation. And please help us to understand this text today. And we pray this in your name. Amen. So raise your hand if you know the book of Jonah, like you've read it before. Cool. So pretty much everybody. So I know that Jonah is, is probably the most popular of all of the books of the minor prophets. And going into that, I get that. You know the fish, you know the sailors, you know the city, and maybe you even know where everything is headed in chapter four. And because of that, I want to do something with you that might be helpful devotionally. And what I want to do with you is I want to go through, we're going to be dealing with chapter four. I want to go through the first three chapters of Jonah, specifically highlighting some of the words that are used in here, specifically some words that are repeated multiple times. It can be a really helpful, really excellent way to understand exactly what God wants you to understand what he's trying to highlight in a text. So I want to go through the first three chapters highlighting two words. And those two words are great and evil. Great and evil. And as you flip through your Bible with me, I just want you to point out these words as we go through, through them and kind of see the way that God is trying to develop this text together. So it begins, as you probably well know, in chapter 1, verses 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise and go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come before me. So the, both the words great and evil immediately come up in the first two verses as Jonah is commissioned to go to this city called Nineveh. Now, Nineveh at this time is part of the nation of Assyria. And if you remember from the beginning of Amos a couple of weeks ago, Assyria was the greatest superpower at the time. But now, as we get to this point, they're in a bit of a decline. But still, God calls them a great city with evil that he's noticed. And the reason is because, <clears throat> excuse me, Nineveh was the biggest city in the world at the time. It's going to say that at the beginning of chapter three, just how big this city is. But for now, what he's noticing is because it's a large city, they have a large amount of sin that has come up to God and he's noticed it. But as it's come up to God, Jonah's response is to go down. And the text says he goes down into a ship, then he goes down into Tarshish, and then it says he went down into sleep. The word for sleep is actually the word to go down. So Jonah, of course, is going immediately against God's call to bring him to the great city until, in verse 4, the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea. 
So this storm that comes up is again described in the exact same way that Nineveh is. It says the great wind and that word for the tempest, mighty tempest. That word mighty is also the word great. So immediately we have a contrast between the power of this city and the power of this storm. And it makes it obvious that what God is bringing attention to is no matter the greatness of this city, no matter the power that they have on earth, no nation on earth has power against the weather. Only God does. And he does it in response to his servant disobeying him. So of course, while Jonah is asleep, the captain comes, wakes him up. And when he comes onto the deck to notice this storm, they're casting lots. This was a way that was, it almost seemed like gambling to try and determine either in a game or an actual uh, wages, an outcome usually done for money. And especially in this, with these unbelieving sailors, it would seem to be very pagan and superstitious. It's like what baseball players do before they pitch, you know, want some kind of superstitious idea of, of uh, to give them luck in a game. But in this case, they're trying to determine who brought the evil on them, who brought this evil, this storm upon them. And it would seem overly superstitious until God providentially intervenes in verse 8 and reveals that the lot fell on Jonah. And as Jonah confesses, it really was him who brought the storm on, which is again described as evil. Something that should have happened, should not have happened if Jonah had just been obedient. And of course, at this point, he tells them that the lot was in fact true, and he did in fact disobey the God who, as he describes in verse uh, nine is the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land and the men have the appropriate, appropriate response. They say they're exceedingly afraid. And again, that word exceedingly, which you're going to notice as we go into chapter four, is the same word great. They were greatly afraid. The greatness of God has been revealed to these unbelieving sailors and they've responded to his greatness by being greatly afraid. And as they're afraid and Jonah realizes he's been caught in this mess and therefore needing to resolve it somehow, refers back in verse 12 to the greatness of the tempest, needing to be dealt with by him being thrown overboard. And even though the unbelieving sailors do not want to do this, they don't want to be culpable for murder, especially murder of God's representative who's on their boat, they decide to oblige him, hoping for the best, praying to God before they do it and throwing him overboard. And of course, after that's done, God stops the storm. And it says in verse 16, that the men feared the Lord exceedingly. Again, that word greatly. So in the midst of the greatness of God being revealed, not only against his disobedient servant, but against all of these men who have never known God before, the results is actually supposedly their salvation. Not only are they greatly fearing the Lord, which Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That's a good response. It also says that they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. It seems that even though this servant was disobedient, it's actually resulted in the salvation of many people. And of course, as you know, what happens right after is that a fish swallows up Jonah. And it's interesting to note how the fish is described which is again, that the Lord appointed it and it was a great fish. 
So again, this concept of greatness keeps coming up over and over and over again. Even to the point where it seems in chapter 2, even Jonah recognizes the greatness of God in this entire story because he responds in this supposed prayer of repentance. And as he's doing that, he's reflecting on the fact that he should have drowned in the ocean for being disobedient, but instead God saved him and responds in kind with thankfulness. And of course, as a result, it says that the fish vomited the dry land and God gives him a second chance and commissions him back to chapter three, verse two, the great city. God calls him back to this city, which is now further described. Nineveh is now not only a great city, but in chapter three, verse three, it's an exceedingly great city. And it's not only great because it says it's a three days journey in breadth, which is an extremely long time to get through probably just to the middle of the city. Some people estimate it could have been as long as 55 miles long, which is close to the size of a major chunk of Orange County. But the words in verse three, that Nineveh was exceedingly great, is best translated directly from the Hebrew as great to God. So it's not only great in an earthly sense, but specifically it's great in what God is going to do in this city. And the greatness of that purpose is revealed immediately because in verse five, after Jonah has told them of the coming destruction, the greatest of them, notice the way the text says it, the greatest of them to the least of them, turns to God in repentance and they believe God. They believe God, the greatest of them, that is the highest in society to the lowest in society, all of them turn to God. And it's not just on the ground level, it's from the very highest level, because even the king, a verse later, tells this to the people in verse 8. Let man and beast be covered with sackcloth, and let them be called, call out mightily to God, and let everyone turn from his evil way, and from the violence that is in his hands. Not only is evil mentioned again, but it's actually mentioned twice because the word for violence also comes from the word evil. He says, if you have evil over here or evil over here, get rid of it. And the hope for the king, as is with the rest of the people in verse 9, is that God might forgive them. And though that might seem like a ridiculous thing that God would do to a pagan city, the city in charge and basically culpable of major, major sins against every single nation around them. Yet as they turn in faith to God, in verse 10, it says, God saw that they turned from their evil way and he relented of the disaster he said he would do to them and did not do it. This is one of the, if not the greatest revival in human history ever on any page of the Bible. And it's demonstrating in everything, whether it be from the sovereignty of God over the earth or over the sea, or whether in his great compassion and salvation to these people that God is a great God, even as people have been evil. And it would seem like the story should end there because the prophet's been recommissioned and forgiven, the sailors are believers now, and the entire center of Nineveh is turning to God in repentance. It would seem like it should end there, but it doesn't. Instead, 
we have a very awkward 11 verses that start talking about Jonah being displeased with the entire thing. And that's what we're going to look at today because it's going to be helpful for us to understand something important about this turn of events from Nineveh to the prophet. This conclusion is God conversing with Jonah to talk about what just happened. And as Jonah reveals a terrible response to the entire situation, God is going to reveal to him by drawing out the sin in his own heart that God is going to teach him a lesson. And he's going to teach him a lesson, a lesson on compassion. Compassion is the focus from God to the prophet and therefore God to believers what compassion should look like. So that is our focus for Jonah. God exposes the selfishness of Jonah so that we would display God's great compassion. God exposes the selfishness of Jonah so that we would display God's great compassion. And we're going to see that as compassion is talked about in three separate chunks through the text. The first two dealing with Jonah and then the third dealing with God. And so the first one that we're going to look at is in verses 1 to 5, which deals with Jonah's lack of compassion for Nineveh. Jonah's lack of compassion for Nineveh. This idea starts in the very first verse. It displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And again, that word exceedingly, hopefully you guys know through this, is from that same word great. But it also involved in that word angry that it says there, it literally says, it displeased Jonah to great evil. As he looked at this revival breaking out with what he would have considered probably the worst pagan unbelievers in the entire area, entire nation surrounding him of anyone he knew, he saw that as a great evil. He saw it as a monstrous thing. And if Jonah were here, he would explain to you why. There's at least two reasons that are obvious that he would think that this was a bad thing because he thought Nineveh were a very bad people and he was right. Immorality was everywhere in the city. There was many, many of them. So it's many people all being culpable for sin. But more than that, they were most, one of the most torturous and barbaric of any of the nations around. They were incredibly violent. They were terrible to the nations that they dominated and destroyed. And so most other nations surrounding them are happy that not only Assyria is going down, but Nineveh is going down. It will be interesting too, because the prophet Amos is preaching in the same time. And in a couple weeks, we're going to see that Hosea is preaching in roughly the same time. And both of them actually talk about how God is going to discipline Israel by Assyria bringing Israel into exile. And Jonah may have even known that. He may have known that same prophecy that the other prophets had told him in his thinking, God, there is no way forgiveness should be offered to these people. They're going to take us into exile. But that's probably not the only reason. You guys might know the other reason because we've been in the book of Obadiah. Can anyone remember what the point of the book of Obadiah was? Just kind of yell it out.
What was the major thrust of the book of Obadiah? What, what did we learn about God and violence? Yeah. Right, yeah, that's, that's good. Basically, the violence of God can be a justifiable thing. It can even be considered good if he's doing it against people who deserve it, right? So Edom was a terrible nation, so God executing punishment on them was just. It was the right thing to do. And so that theology, which should be in our heads, is also in Jonah's head. And he's thinking, if they're a terrible nation, you just execute justice on them. That's how this works, God. And now maybe you're thinking, okay, even so, even amidst those ideas, I know the Bible more than you, Jonah. I have the New Testament, and I know that God is supposed to be compassionate. I like his compassion. I like his forgiveness. And so I, I would give it to people. I would not be you. I would not disobey God if he told me to do something, and I would certainly not be so hard-hearted to terrible people. Now, let me give you a scenario, and you tell me if you think that way. Tell me if you still think that way. This is the scenario. Me and Ashley have a friend who, when they were very young, their father left them. Their father left their family. And as this friend grew up without a father, they learned to deal with that and, and just move on with just a single mother, but be very frustrated with their father for years and years and years until one day the father called. And he said, I want to, with my new girlfriend, come and see you. And I want to come and see you because me and my girlfriend have become Christians. And we want to apologize, specifically me, for everything that I've done to you. And I need to ask your forgiveness. Now, it might seem nice for us to think, well, that's really great. But imagine if you were in that friend's shoes. If a parent or a close friend of yours had left you, would you forgive so easily? If someone had done such personal sin to you, had abandoned you, had done something wrong to you, had affected your life negatively for so much, and suddenly they put on the Christian name tag and everything's just okay. Think about how you would deal with that. Think about how you would deal with someone who had done great sin, but not even against you, not even on a personal level. Think about someone like the typical example of evil, Adolf Hitler. Is Adolf Hitler up into the category of being forgiven? Someone who's responsible for millions and millions of innocent people's deaths? When I was in high school, we unfortunately had to learn a lot about serial killers. And I could tell you with those visions of those people in my head, I'd find a hard time believing them if they were to say that they were suddenly transformed and became a Christian. I remember one pastor was one time talking to three gentlemen about the gospel. And the more he was explaining the gospel to these three men, he would talk about the ways that God forgives people. And they seemed to be coming on board the idea until one of the men asked this question. He said, what if you were talking to me and I was a child abuser? What if I had done something wrong, something terrible to children, taken children, abused children, would I still be eligible for forgiveness? And the pastor responded by saying, if you had really repented of your sins, 
And if you had really turned to Christ in saving faith, then yes, you would be forgiven. And all three men walked away because they could not accept that God could somehow forgive people like that. And in our text, that's exactly what Jonah is telling God. He says it directly to God in verse two. I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. He says, it's not that I forgot who you are. I knew exactly who you are, but who you are and how you respond to sinners is inappropriate in this circumstance. And so he responds to God. It says he even prays to God that mercy shouldn't reach Nineveh. Even a prophet, just like any Christian out there, can think that they know God, but really are completely unaffected by God. That is, they know what God is like, but they don't assume that they need to be like that same God. That compassion can be given to you, but not change you, not affect you, not transform you in a way that you should want to be compassionate to others. If you were on the devotional plan, one of the texts you would have read is about the unforgiving servant, the parable that Christ talks about in Matthew chapter 18, in which a man is forgiven a insurmountable debt, a debt he could never pay back from a king. And immediately after this exchange, this amazing forgiveness of his debt that he's been given, he goes and refuses to forgive another man who owes him a debt that is incredibly small. And in the same way that Jesus is, is pointing out this point to his disciples and to the people who are his, who are following him, saying, how could you be forgiven and do absolutely nothing? God begins to tease this question out of Jonah. And he begins it by very simply asking, do you do well to be angry? Do you do well to be angry? It's as if the whole book of Jonah is taken by God and presented to Jonah. His own story is given to him by God, and he asks him the question. If you reread this book, do you think you'd be excused? Do you think it would be okay that you could be angry? Or do you think you would reread this and find yourself as a hypocrite? And the answer is really clear. Jonah seems to know it because he doesn't answer the question. He just walks away. He just walks away. Verse 5, he walks out of the city. And by the way, a prophet after a revival for this would probably be called to actually teach the people, teach the people what it is supposed to be, being a Christian. And he leaves and he watches. It says he sat under the shade and he waited to see what would become of the city. And this is basically what's happening. I watched some videos this week of the history of an event in Las Vegas in 1950. And in 1950, Las Vegas was becoming one of the most entertainment-centered cities in the entire world. And people would come for all sorts of shows. They'd come for gambling. They'd come for theater performances. They'd come for all sorts of things. But one thing they'd come for is they would pay to watch nuclear bombs go off. Really, this really happened. They would sit hundreds of miles away and pay as the US military began experimenting with their nuclear capabilities and watch these massive, massive explosions go off. And in a really 
tragically sad way, that's exactly what Jonah does here. He leaves to see if maybe God will still annihilate them. Maybe he'll still blow them up. That same word for overthrow that he mentions is actually the same word for Sodom and Gomorrah. If you know that story about a sinful city in Genesis chapter 19 that was destroyed by God, he is waiting for Sodom and Gomorrah part two. And in that moment, you might think that the hardness of Jonah would demand God intervening in a very serious way, that Jonah would be punished, that Jonah would be chastised by God in a serious way. He would be removed from ministry, maybe even killed on the spot. But instead, God will paint a picture for Jonah and expose his own heart specifically so that you here today would see what we're supposed to know about God's compassion. And so in the next section, after leaving Jonah's lack of compassion for the Ninevites, God teases out what Jonah is really compassionate for. And that is verse six to nine. That's the second part, which is Jonah's compassion for the plant. Jonah's compassion for the plant. In verse six, it says that the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah that it might be a shade over him, over his head to save him from his discomfort. And that should hit you hard because even though Jonah has gone off to see the nuclear annihilation of a city, at least he's hoping for it, God is compassionate to him. God provides him shade. In a single moment, the entire life cycle of a plant takes place to which he is now shaded from the intense heat that would have been in this region. And Jonah's response is that he's exceedingly happy. Verse 6. And of course, exceedingly, what does that verse mean? What does that word mean? Someone yell it out. Great. Great. Shouldn't that seem weird? He was just massively angry that God didn't punish another people and all of a sudden something happens for him and it's reversed completely. He's greatly affected again, but now in the total opposite direction. He has no time to thank God for this because he's just boasting in the gifts that he's been given. And the point should be very, very clear is that when Jonah thinks something is great or he responds with great affection, it is only when something good happens to him. Terrible things can happen to every other sinner out there, but it will be a good thing. It will be a greatly good thing if it happens to him. It is the exact opposite of what the psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 36, where he says this, Incline my heart to your testimonies, and not to selfish gain. Jonah has inclined his heart to selfish gain instead of God's testimonies, instead of the obedience he was supposed to demonstrate to the other people. He has selfish intentions, and he reveals that he actually completely understands the compassion of God, but he doesn't have compassion for the same things. He has compassion for himself compassion for his own comfort. And this is the interesting point that God wants to bring out of him and reveal to us, which is that it is very easy, very, very easy to be distracted from the command to be compassionate when you're comfortable. If you are too comfortable, you will not be compassionate. 
Is that a judgment against having nice things? Absolutely not. It's a question of where did good things come from and will they distract us while we're lying in our beds or while playing Xbox or while we're reading books? Will it distract us from doing what else God has called us to do, which is to be compassionate to others? It's even worse because Jonah isn't just being a typical sinner. He's actually in this moment being a perfect illustration of all of Israel. Everything that we learned about in Amos, every way that the people of Israel thought that they were better than themselves, like we went over in the prophecy of Amos, which again is happening at the same time as Jonah, is totally, totally illustrated by Jonah. We learned from Will last week from Deuteronomy talking about the ways in which we're supposed to honor and love God. And one of those verses that I believe he said in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8, brings out the exact same point that Amos brought out, which is questioning the Israelites why they think they were saved. Why do you think you are my special people? And he says that in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Moses says these words to the Israelites. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. It wasn't because you were bigger and better than every other nation. You know what the message of God's compassion was to them? You know what the message of compassion is to you and the, mes the message of compassion that you can share with your friends? You know what it's summed up as? God loves you because he loves you. God loves you because he loves you. And the Bible never gives a greater explanation than that. The greatness of salvation is met completely in the fact that God is going to save people, none of which earned his salvation, that he simply desired to be gracious. And the worse the sinner, the higher the greatness of God. The worse their sin, the greater his grace and the greater his compassion to these people. And that is beautifully illustrated in this massive revival of a pagan nation who never once thought of coming to God until God's representative came to them. And instead of rejoicing in that, Jonah hates it. And so when God teases out this selfishness in Jonah's heart, he immediately takes it away so he can explain that to Jonah. It says he appointed a worm just like he appointed a plant to take away the shade he appointed a scorching wind to make him faint because he was exposed to the sun. And finally, after feeling that heat, he doesn't just want to faint, he wants to die again. And so again, God confronts him with that same question. Do you do well to be angry about the plant? And this time, Jonah's hardness really comes out. He says, absolutely I do. I totally am justified with my frustration. And the problem is that everything in the book of Jonah has been building up to answer this question. God's question isn't really, are you just angry about the plant? God is asking this question. Is it right for you to be angry about your suffering 
but desire suffering for other people? Is it okay for you to accept the grace of God and demand the judgment of everyone else? Is that okay? And Jonah says it's okay, and the reason is because Jonah believes that he can usurp, that he can take, that he can steal God's right to be judge. And that will never work because God is a perfect judge and men are imperfect judges. Romans 2.1 says this, Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Jonah, you have no idea. The salvation that I have brought for you is not stuck with only you. It is not restricted. It is not confined to only you. I sent you to save other people, that you would reveal the message of salvation to other people. And in their revival, I would be glorified. And in my compassion to them, I would be exalted. And so with this extreme, extreme hardness, God finally responds and explains his compassion for sinners to Jonah. After Jonah's lack of compassion for the Ninevites and his compassion for the plant, God explains the third point, which is his own compassion for sinners. The third point is God's compassion for sinners. Verses 10, verses 11. He says in verse 10, You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. God literally tells Jonah, you didn't work for this plant, you didn't own it, you didn't deserve it, and you didn't make it grow. You want to hear something crazy that I learned this week? That word grow, guess what word it is? Go ahead, take a guess. What, what word do you think grow is if you translate it literally? Yeah, it's great. He said you didn't make it great. So God is throwing the entire book of Jonah at his face and saying, what do you make great, Jonah? What do you make great? And this is the point that he's leading to. That great cities, great fish, great plants, great winds, and especially the greatness of salvation. All of it comes from God. And all of it reflects the greatness of God. And all of it demands that we would not only demonstrate a great love, but allow that great love to be defined and owned by God. That he is sovereign over everything on heaven and earth, and especially sovereign in salvation. Everything comes back to his greatness, and his greatness is so great that Jonah and no one else could ever get in the way of it. There's a verse I absolutely love in Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11, and it says this, Isaiah 55, 11, So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing which I sent. When I say I'm going to be compassionate to someone, no one can stop me. My greatness will absolutely never be stopped. And that is such an important message that in the book of Exodus at the beginning of the Bible and in the book of Romans at the end of the Bible, not the very end, but during the end of the New Testament era, in Exodus 33:19 and Romans 9:15, both Moses and the Apostle Paul say the exact same thing about God, which is saying this: God says, "I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion 
on whom I will have compassion. God says that directly to Jonah as the very last word he leaves them with. He says this, should I not? He asked Jonah to his face, should I not? Which is only to say, Jonah, do I have the right? Do I have the right to save whoever I want to? Do I have the right to reveal my goodness and compassion to anyone whom I see fit to give it to? And he explains that by looking at Nineveh in verse 11. Should I not pity that great city Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? Now, most scholars think that the 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left is talking about children. It's talking about young people. So 120,000 persons isn't all of Nineveh, that's just the kids, which means that most conservative estimates say there's about 600,000 people, but most estimates say Nineveh probably had as many as a million people, which would fit with a three days journey width of the city. So there's a million people in this city and also cows, super random, also cows. But what is the point of mentioning that? And the whole point is because God is consistently pointing out that his greatness and sovereignty over everything is important. That's not just plants that God cares about, like Jonah. He cares about cows, which have life and breath and are something that shows the ingenuity and the design and creativity of God. But something even more than that is people people who have been designed by God from the womb. How every single one of you, as God created exactly the way you are, from the way you look to your personalities, and God cares about that. And that God is not just some kid who's playing Legos and constructing big, complex towers only to just destroy everything and enjoy the destruction of it. It says God takes no delight in the destruction of the wicked. And in fact, so much so that even though there are many who will be judged, it is because he is satisfying his demand for justice, but he will still satisfy his demand for justice and save people people who bear his likeness, people who he's designed and created, and he cares for them. And if Jonah is curious that their perfection or their sin could ever get in the way of God, both being just and saving them, we know he has another thing coming. Titus chapter 3 verse 5 says this, he saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Not even your imperfection can get in the way of God loving you. That he can be just and he can provide someone else to be righteous for you. Someone Jesus Christ perfectly emulated. That he was righteousness incarnate, taking on human form so he could represent human beings and therefore anyone before him or after him might be saved, though they are completely unrighteous, saved by a perfect substitute. 
which means no matter how unrighteous they are, it does not make Christ more unrighteous. He is perfectly righteous, no matter the unrighteous person he is representing. He says that that unrighteousness will be so beautiful that I will call people from all over the world into my kingdom. Psalm twenty-two twenty-seven says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. He's not saying that every single person will be saved, but people from everywhere will be saved. Not culture, nor creed, nor preference, nor personality, not even the sins they've committed will get in the way of God being compassionate and transforming people and allowing them to see their sin for what it is and turn to God in repentance and therefore receive the eternal compassion of God when we meet him in heaven. The tragic thing about Jonah is that he knows this. He admitted it. At the very end of his own prayer, he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. This is a good thing for us to know because you are not called, just as I am not called, to transform other people. You are not called to change other people, but you are empowered by the Holy Spirit as a believer in God, that you would tell people the news of God's compassion to them and God would change them. And just like Isaiah 55, 11 says, that mission will never be stopped. If you tell people the news of the gospel and they do not turn to God, God knew that. But if they turn to the gospel and repent and saved and join into the beautiful fellowship of the church that he has prepared for his people, then God desired to be compassionate. That's the promise you have, that you never have the worry of the burden of salvation. God has accomplished it for you. And as he tells Jonah, he should have noticed this throughout the whole book. The sailors knew the mercy of God because they saw him expressed in the control of the storm and they turned to God. And even the Ninevites with a message, not of salvation from Jonah, but just a message of annihilation. Look at chapter three, verse four, and you'll see there is no offer of salvation that Jonah gives them. But even Jonah can't stop the king from thinking in chapter three, verses nine. Who knows? Who knows? Maybe God tried to warn us through this guy, and maybe God will save us, and he did. Jonah may never have got it. The, the text ends on this question, and it's designed that way that you would ask yourselves the question, that we collectively would try to understand, do I really love the compassion of God? And you can only understand that if you understand the compassion that God had toward you. The other part of Matthew 18 that you could have read this week talks about how God is the good shepherd who goes to find the lost sheep. That even though that sheep is not smart enough to know he should not wander away from the flock, regardless, God goes and brings him. He goes and finds the sheep and brings him in as a good shepherd. And you know what? No matter what you do as a sinner, if you believe in God and you trust in him, 
Just like God is being the shepherd to Jonah, who is acting like a lost sheep, he does the same thing even for believers who have not been compassionate but desire to. God has been compassionate to you if you understand and accept that though you are an imperfect sinner, that every single one of us as sinners deserve eternal damnation and judgment of God, God has nonetheless been compassionate to you. He was compassionate in sending his son Christ, who was punished for the sins that we should have been punished for, and lived a perfect life so that we would look perfect before God. That is the message of Jonah. It is the gospel hundreds of years, thousands from now, thousands of years ago, and if you want to understand the good task that you have been given of understanding the compassion of God and giving it to other people, I will leave you with this verse. If you want to know a verse that will tell you the compassion of God understood by you and then told to others, this is the verse that will help you with that. It's in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 18 chapter 5, verse 18 to 20, these three verses, and they explain what a person who knows the compassion of God will do. I'll read it for you. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us, that is, brought us together to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the ministry of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors. Ambassadors, that is representatives, servants, people who share the message of someone else. We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of God, be reconciled to God. If you have understood the compassion of God, I promise you it will become easier and easier to be compassionate to other people. No matter what they have done, there is no greater joy than being part of the ministry of reconciliation. Seeing people who could never abandon their sin and never abandon those temptations which destroy and enslave them and you might be able to share the gospel with them and see and witness the transformation of that person's entire life given to God, trusting that one day they will be reunited with the most compassionate being in the whole universe forever. That's the promise that we were met with if we desire to not just know God, but to be like God. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that the ministry of Jonah and the message that he has given us would be real to us. That it would ignite us to want to be compassionate people because we know we do not deserve your compassion. We know that we have sinned and fallen short of your standards, but we are so thankful and excited that we have no fear in this life of anything that happens, not only because you are in control, but because you have saved us. And we know Nothing can separate us from your love. Nothing can separate us from your compassion. I pray that for 
anyone here who does not understand or, or not desire to know you, that you would intervene in their life and you would transform them and you would conform them to your image, that you would reveal how compassionate you have been to them despite our sin. And that you would reveal the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us perfectly, even as John 13, one says, to the end, to the max, to the most he could possibly love us, that we would have that impact our lives and that as we read Jonah, we would desire to be those compassionate people. Thank you for your love for us. Let it fuel our lives and direct our hearts. And we pray this in your name. Amen.